So, for example, you can type in uh, children's book titles that you'll never see. And there we go. Uh, children's book titles you'll never see, and a whole list will come up. Uh, you don't need to be able to read that. Uh, I've selected a few of my favourites, which I'd like to share with you. You ready? You might want to think about whether this is one to read at home or to donate to the local school library. Children's book titles that you'll never see. Kathy was so bad her mum stopped loving her. Curious George and the high voltage electric fence. Sharing is for the weak. Things rich kids have that you never will. Why the new baby is better than you. And my personal favourite, Pop Goes the Hamster and Other Fun Microwave Games. What do you reckon? Donate that to the local school library? Slightly inappropriate, slightly awkward, risque. It's why it's children's book titles that you'll never see. I think we feel a little bit that way about Ruth chapter 3. It just seems a little inappropriate, risque, a little awkward, or, or at worst, reckless and ungodly. Have a look with me. Uh, Ruth chapter 1 uh, Ruth and Naomi return from Moab. Uh, they are homeless, they are poor, they are widows. Um, and Naomi sums it up. They're full of despair in chapter 1. Then Ruth chapter 2, uh, Ruth goes into the grain fields to work. Uh, and under the gracious hand of God's providence, his kindness, she meets Boaz. And he is kind and generous. She is humble and amazed. And they have this wonderful conversation. And, and she returns and tells her mother-in-law about him and that his name is Boaz. And, and Ruth and Naomi can see the possibilities, that he could be the kinsman redeemer. And so then Ruth continues to work in the grain fields uh, and continues to work there uh, and work hard, and then that's it. Just that's it. They, they've had this wonderful conversation, this, uh, this connection and this conversation full of possibilities, and then that's it. Ruth's time in the harvest field is beginning to diminish. When the harvest is finished, she'll have to move on. Her regular contact with Boaz is gone. Boaz could redeem the family, but at this stage, it's only a dream, a hypothetical, a a possibility. It's a bit like they're in year 12 and the year's nearly finished and everyone's going off to different universities, different tastes, different uh, gap years, different jobs, and they still haven't talked about how they feel about each other. There's tension there. What are they going to do? There's not a clear guideline about what they should do. There's no male relative to go and speak to Boaz on their behalf, and there's no clear biblical guideline about what two widows should do in the time of the judges. So look what Naomi suggests, verse 1. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. He says, Ruth, Boaz has only seen you out in the fields in your work clothes, sweaty and dirty. Let him see you dressed up and perfumed and washed. And then verse 4, when he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go uncover his feet and lie down. 
He will tell you what to do. Really? He will tell you what to do? I'm sure he would. I mean, let's just put it out there. That's the elephant in the room, the elephant on the threshing floor. A, a young, perfumed, washed girl goes and lies at the feet of a man at night when they're alone. What does Naomi think's going to happen? What on earth is she thinking? What is she getting Ruth into? At best, it seems a little inappropriate. At worst, it seems very ungodly. And we might want to ask, what is this chapter doing in the Bible? But listen, the Bible is not the story of religious superheroes who lived perfect, polished lives and never made mistakes and never let anyone down, never messed up. Let me give you an example. Abraham, that great towering figure of the Old Testament, the father of the nation of Israel, uh, receives these wonderful promises from God in Genesis 12 that he'll be blessed and through him all nations will be blessed. And then almost straight after in verse 10, now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is your wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. And so Pharaoh takes Sarah as one of his wives. So Abraham, the great figure of faith and towering figure in the Old Testament, is a liar and a coward. He'd rather risk his wife's purity than his own skin. This is the reason that so many of these stories don't make it into the children's Bibles. <laughs> They're not G and PG rated, they are MA and R rated. See, the story of the Bible is really about how broken, frail, sinful people fail. And an extraordinarily gracious God saves. And so there's only one hero in the Bible. Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, who came and died for our sins and rose from the dead to give us new life. He is the only hero in the Bible. So we mustn't be shocked by these stories. They're very similar to our stories. They're very ordinary. We fail. We mess up. We sin. But God forgives. God saves. God transforms. So I want to suggest that there's a bit more going on in Ruth chapter 3 than perhaps our initial awkwardness or uncertainty about whether it's inappropriate. And the first thing I want us to see is how hope transforms Naomi. Remember she returned from Moab in chapter 1. She said, don't call me Naomi, call me Marah, which means bitter, for the Lord has made my life very bitter. The beginning of chapter 2, she's still paralyzed by that despair. And so it's Ruth who has to take the initiative to go out into the fields to work, otherwise they'll starve. And Ruth returns with 13 kilos of flour after one day's work. But then the really brilliant news that comes is that she'd worked in the fields of Boaz, and that news transforms Naomi. It's like a brilliant shaft of light that cuts through her despair. And she says, chapter 2, verse 20, The Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Do you see how she's transformed? She was once gripped and paralyzed by despair. She had no hope, no plans, no concern really for Ruth's future. And now she has hope. And she's full of praise and thanksgiving and worship to God. And she begins to plan for a better future. And it's a good future. 
Verse 1, she wants Ruth to find a home. Not just a house, but a home where she'll be well provided for. And not just with anyone, but with Boaz, their guardian redeemer, their relative. Where did she get this idea from? Deuteronomy 25 and Numbers 27 in the law of God. This is a good, godly, righteous idea she has. Do you see the wonderful impact of hope on Naomi? She comes alive again and she begins to dream and plan for a better future. Friends, this is the importance of hope for us. It enables us to dream and plan and work and pray for a better future. This is one of the ways that we can serve each other, keep on helping each other have hope so that we can pray and dream and plan for a better future. And yet it's not quite that simple, is it? Because hope isn't a magic word. You don't just say hope and everything is okay. And Naomi's strategy is very strange. Her goal is good, get Ruth and Boaz together. That's a good goal, but the strategy, the path to get there is very strange. This is the time of the judges with chaos and violence and instability. Just a couple of pages earlier in our Bibles, in Judges 19, a young woman was gang-raped in Gibeah. And so now, in this context, in this time, Naomi's sending Ruth, a young woman, alone, unprotected, to the threshing floor at night and tells her to lie at the feet of a man. It's dangerous. So hope alone isn't enough. But when you combine hope with godliness, hope with a trust in the Lord, then it is powerful. And we'll see that happen in how Ruth and Boaz conduct themselves on the threshing floor. We'll see their godliness. Now, to help you see this, to highlight this, I want you to imagine that Hollywood wrote this story, as Mick suggested earlier. How would Hollywood tell this story? As I thought about during the week, I reckon there's two ways. There's the romantic comedy, and the romantic comedy would sort of would have Ben Stiller playing Boaz and Cameron Diaz playing Ruth and Betty White playing Naomi. <laughs> and the way the romantic comedy would work, that after some hilarious and slightly awkward sexual tension, uh, Ruth and Boaz sleep together. But the next morning, she talks about moving her 12 cats in and redecorating the house pink. And Boaz says, oh, I'm not so sure if I'm ready for a commitment. Uh, and so things cool off. But then through some hilarious flashbacks to earlier scenes in the movie, he remembers how much he loves her. But she's about to marry someone else. And so he jumps on a donkey and rides through Jerusalem, uh, through Bethlehem. And because of the romantic comedy, all these other characters, of course, get drawn into the chase. And they all arrive at the wedding and they watch as Boaz convinces her to marry him. And it fin- finishes beautifully. The romantic comedy. The other way that Hollywood might make it is uh, as a period drama. Uh, and so you'd have Liam Neeson as uh, Boaz, Gwyneth Paltrow as Ruth, and... Shirley MacLaine in the part of Naomi. Now, because it's a period drama, it's a little more serious. It would be a story of forbidden love. A Moabite and an Israelite. Oh my gosh, can't have that. But they can't fight how they feel about each other. And so they get together one night on the threshing floor and there's a romantic, passionate love scene. But the next morning, under pressure from his religious, judgmental family, Boaz decides that he can't marry Ruth. 
What was I thinking? A Moabite? That's crazy. And so she is cast aside and destitute. But then one of his best friends says to him that he needs to search his heart and be true to himself. And he realizes he does love Ruth. And so the final scene in the movie, he stands with Ruth in front of his family and he delivers a speech where he says something like, look inside your heart and you'll see there's a Moabite inside all of us. (laughs) Or something. And everyone learns that religion is evil and judgmental family pressure is wrong. And you just need to go with your heart, be true to yourself, follow your heart. Well, that's how Hollywood would make it. I don't know. You might tell me if I've got a script writing future ahead of me or not. (laughs) But do you notice how different that is from Ruth chapter 3? Do you notice how different Hollywood would be from what really happened? And one of the big differences is there's no sex in Ruth chapter 3. Ruth and Boaz don't sleep together in Ruth chapter 3. I mean, think about it. A young, perfumed, washed, well-dressed woman goes to the threshing floor at night alone. Boaz has been drinking. He is in a good mood and she lies at his feet. He wakes up and sees her there. He is delighted that she is there. And then they stop. And that's it. Wow, that is so different from our culture, right? The way our culture tells us is that if the stars are out and you feel romantic and your heart is pumping and the mood is right and you're falling in love and it feels good and you want to do it, just follow your instincts. Go with your heart. How would you do if you were in Ruth and Boaz's shoes? How are you doing with those times of secrecy and privacy? Ruth and Boaz encourage us not to see secrecy and privacy as a cloak to cover up and hide sin, but as an opportunity for godliness. You see, God isn't anti-sex. God created sex. God invented sex. God says that sex is a wonderful thing between a husband and wife. So the Bible says that sex is a wonderful thing between a husband and wife. So we know that sex is a wonderful thing between a husband and wife. And that's what Ruth and Boaz are pursuing. Have a look at verse 9 again with me. Verse 9, Who are you? He asked. I am your servant Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Why? Since, because here's the reason, you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her. But it's more than that. Look what he says in verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. The kindness there is not that Boaz is this lonely, desperate older man who's just so grateful that a younger woman has shown an interest in him. No, the kindness is not to him No, no, the kindness that she showed earlier was to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and to the family of Elimelech, to tie herself to them, to care for them. And now the kindness that she shows, which is greater, is not to just pursue any marriage with younger men, rich or poor, but to seek out a marriage with a kinsman redeemer, to pursue and to preserve the line of Elimelech, to care for that line, preserve their family name. There is the kindness. And so Ruth says... Spread the corner of your garment over me. Will you marry me? What a woman. What a woman. 
And Boaz is delighted with her offer. He uses the C word, commitment. He says, I will pursue this marriage with you. What a couple. They are perfect for each other, aren't they? We've seen uh, over the last couple of weeks that they both worship the Lord. They're both humble. Chapter 2, Boaz is kind and gentle. Ruth is humble and amazed and faithful. She's described uh, and recognized in the community in verse 11 as a woman of noble character, which is a lot like Proverbs 31. A wife of noble character, who can find? She's worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honour her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Ruth, a woman of noble character. I wonder when Solomon wrote Proverbs, whether he had his great, great, grandmother in mind, Ruth. And Boaz is a man of standing, of respect and integrity in the community, as we learnt last week. They are perfect for each other. But here's the thing. The takeaway from this, the take home, the application point, isn't that you have to get married, that you can only do this if you're married. No, no, they are still single. The marriage still hangs in the balance. We'll see how it works out next week. No, no, they are single and godly when this happens. So the takeaway, the take-home for us is, is this. Whatever our situation, whatever temptation we're under, whatever pressure is against us, see it as an opportunity for godliness. Ladies, be like Ruth, humble, courageous, faithful. Men, be like Boaz, strong, humble and generous. Well, Naomi's plan, her strategy, had set Ruth to sail on terribly stormy seas, very dangerous seas. But it's the godliness of Ruth and Boaz that means that they can chart a course into a safe harbour. But we're still left with a question. Why did Ruth agree to this strategy? Was she just naive and had no idea what she was getting in for? Was she blindly obedient to her mother-in-law? I don't think so. I think she knew she was taking a risk. Not a careless, flippant, reckless risk, but a careful, wise risk. Think about it this way. She knew that Boaz was a kinsman redeemer, that he could marry her, and she'd experienced his kindness out in the fields, that he was a man of godly character. And she'd experienced that kindness and protection day after day after day during the harvest field. She had heard his prayer for her in Ruth chapter 2. He prayed good things for her. And she knew that all that had happened was the provident, generous, gentle, kind hand of the Lord. And I think she weighed all that up. And she said, I will trust the Lord under whose wings I have come to take refuge. I will trust the man that he has put before me and I will go to the threshing floor. Look what she says again in verse 8 and 9. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm Ruth. I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now that phrase there, halfway through verse 9, 
spread the corner of your garment, can also mean, can also be translated, spread your wings over me. Does that sound at all familiar? Maybe something from last week from Ruth chapter 2, Boaz's prayer, verse 12. Have a look with me. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. At that time, Boaz prayed for Ruth. He prayed that the Lord would bless her in every way with food and safety and protection, with a home. And was that happening? Was that heading in that direction? Yes. And how was God answering that prayer of Boaz's? By Boaz. Boaz was the answer to his own prayer. And so Ruth says, will you answer that prayer of yours? Will you spread your wings over me and protect me? What godly confidence she has. Sometimes that's true for us. Sometimes we are the answer to our own prayers. Sometimes the Lord makes us the answer to our own prayers. And you're praying that God will raise up someone, God will send someone, God will put it on someone's heart, God will empower someone, and then you think, maybe I could be the one that God is sending, raising up, empowering, putting on the heart of. But what are you praying about now? What are you praying about now? Lord, please send someone to connect with my neighbours and my workmates. Please send someone to nurture and encourage my wife. Please raise up someone to disciple my kids. Lord, please put it on the heart of someone to, to see their ministry here on a Sunday morning, to get around and encourage and build people up. Lord, please empower someone to welcome newcomers and see them well integrated into church life. Just maybe you could be the one to answer that prayer. You could be the person by whom God answers that prayer. Sometimes, not always, sometimes the Lord makes us the answer to our own prayers. Let's pull all this together. Hope is a wonderful thing. It enables us to dream and to plan and to pray for better things. But it's not a magic word. On its own, it's not enough. But when you combine hope with godliness, with a passion to see people know Jesus, then it is a powerful thing. Just under 30 years ago, it was a godly hope for the hills that caused a bunch of men and women meeting in Borkham Hills to pray big prayers, to dream and make big, bold plans and to make a, take a risk to plant this church. Hope with godliness is a wonderful thing. My prayer for us is that our shared hope in Jesus, as we've talked and sung about today, would give us a passion to see people know Jesus so that we would dream big dreams, pray big prayers and make big plans for his glory and for the sake of the hills. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for chapters like this in the Bible that remind us that following you is not about having it all together. The story of the Bible is not of superheroes, but of your gracious hand and your kindness in the lives of broken, sinful people. Thank you for the men and women in this room who are living testimonies of that reality, of your kindness, of your grace to us. We thank you for hope. 
We pray that our hope in Jesus would enable us to dream and plan and pray for better things, to think about what might be possible under your hand for those who have taken refuge under your wings in the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.